Chapter 17 of The Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter 17 Have you noticed, inquired Mrs. Colson genially, addressing her household assembled at the evening repast, the day after Christmas, how changed Mr. Lee is? Scarcely a word to say for himself, and out till all hours of the night, or morning, rather. No wonder he looks thin and worn. I think you'll find that currant jelly good, Miss Jackson. I put it up myself. You know I prefer mint sauce with roast lamb, Mrs. Colson, returned Miss Jackson, mildly reproachful, repudiating the jelly. As to Mr. Lee, well, since you mention it, I will admit that he is changed, and not for the better. Late hours, suggested an old gentleman with a fierce gray mustache. Late hours and hard work, perhaps, burning the candle at both ends like all young fellows. Young men will be young men, General, returned the White House baby with a wan smile. Would you kindly pass the chili sauce? Thank you so much. He used to be so merry, continued Mrs. Colson, shaking her head regretfully. Always a cheerful word or a joke, even for the servants. And I have often heard him whistling and singing in his room while he was dressing. And now... And now, said the White House baby acidly, when he comes home he walks to and fro over my head, until I get so nervous I can't sleep. I really think, Mrs. Colson, you might speak to him about it. I must have my rest, you know. It's love, said the old gentleman, gallantly filling Miss Jackson's glass. That is what's the matter with him. A pair of bright eyes, ladies, plays the devil with a man, young or old. Oh, General, exclaimed the ladies in coquettish chorus. Mr. Marks also, remarked Miss Jackson thoughtfully, is not the man he once was. No, agreed Mrs. Colson regretfully. That is true, Miss Jackson. He keeps very late hours, too, and he used to be so, well, so circumspect, you know. The old gentleman burst into a shout of rough laughter. My dear madam, he said, you have employed the right word. Whatever that young man may do, I'll wager he does it in a circumspect manner. Oh, General, again chorused the ladies in faint expostulation. Do you see Mrs. Colson's new white silk waist? whispered the White House baby to Miss Jackson under the cover of a sudden buzz of conversation. That is the second this winter, and it is trimmed with Persian bands. Did you ever hear of such extravagance? I'll wager her shoes don't keep out the wet, returned Miss Jackson in the same tone, adding aloud, We were just admiring your bodice, Mrs. Colson. How very becoming it is. And meanwhile, up in his room, David Lee sat before his writing desk and gazed at a miscellaneous collection of what appeared to be odds and ends destined for the scrap basket. The fact that dinner was in progress below disturbed his serenity not at all for he had no intention of presenting himself at a festive board. 
there were times when the society of his fellow boarders did not appeal to his sense of duty. Upon the floor beside him was a copy of the evening paper, open at the society column. It had laid there for the past hour, and the page was creased and wrinkled, as if crushed by an impatient hand. Now and then he lifted an article from the little heap before him, and held it judicially, as though weighing its value. I will keep one thing, he said aloud. One. Which shall it be? He carefully put aside several little scented notes, a handkerchief with its dainty embroidered monogram, two or three faded flowers, and a long white glove. It was not a very large collection, but a choice seemed difficult. He smoothed out the handkerchief with a lingering touch, then folded it carefully, placed it in the drawer of the desk, and took up the glove. There is something wonderfully human about an empty glove which has shaped itself to a hand. It retains the personality of its owner in a manner possible to few inanimate objects. It also seems to appeal mutely for the absent, and to continually beckon wandering memory back into the sunshine or shadow of the past. David Lee held the white glove until his fingers instinctively closed over it, as though the soft suede covered a still softer hand of flesh and blood. I will keep this, he said, rousing himself abruptly and gathering together the notes and bits of brown flowers. There were very few, to be sure, but they made quite a little pile as he laid them away in a drawer of the desk. David, my boy, he continued meditatively, you have been a fool, yes, a fool. Are you a child that you should cry for the moon? Go to work, there's plenty to do. Brace up now and write your note. Take your medicine like a little man. The result of this exhortation was the following epistle, written with great care upon his best stationery, after many sheets had been begun and flung impatiently aside. My dear Miss Bird, I have just been reading the star and hasten to offer my hearty congratulations and very best wishes. What a lucky man Mr. Rivers is, to be sure. I wonder how many fellows in Washington are envying him tonight. Shall I see you at Mrs. Redmond's dinner on Tuesday? I want to present my congratulations in person, and, incidentally, to return the handkerchief you lost at the Stones' cotillion, and which I was fortunate enough to find. Wishing you every possible happiness, believe me, sincerely yours, David Graham Lee. David looked at his signature with some admiration as he laid aside the blotter. It was only on state occasions that he wrote it out in full and brought the end of the last letter around beneath the whole name in an imposing flourish. He addressed an envelope and stamped it with the careful attention to detail which had marked the transcribing of the note, scrupulously wiping his pen and returning it to its appointed place. Here endeth the first lesson he remarked as he took up his overcoat and opened the door. "'There he goes,' remarked Miss Jackson as the front door slammed. "'Doesn't he even tell you when he dines out, Mrs. Colson?' Mrs. Colson smiled a patient and a long-suffering smile. "'My dear Miss Jackson,' she returned with the air of a martyr, "'I'm accustomed to being slighted and neglected. What does a little more or less matter?' 
but a certain amount of courtesy is due every lady from a man remarked the white house baby with the manner of including even an inferior in her large-mindedness on such subjects my dear mrs rowan replied mrs colson delicately crooking her little finger as she helped herself to potatoes i have long been a stranger to the prerogatives of a lady and yet i remember the time when i scarcely knew how to sew on a button or tie my own shoe david meanwhile unconscious of his deterioration posted his letter and walked on ignoring the fact that he had not dined and had lunched very lightly when a man is oblivious to the claims of the central portion of his anatomy it is a tolerably sure sign he has received a hard hit from some source and is as yet stunned from the blow and in fact when david in looking over the evening paper had glanced casually at the social news and read the bald fact that senator byrd announced the engagement of his daughter isabel to the hon charles rivers member of congress from virginia he felt very much as he had once done as a boy when the ball he expected to catch hit him on the nose he had quite lately begun to analyze his sentiments towards that young lady and had come to a very definite conclusion regarding her there had been unexpected meetings with strictly informal chats jolly little suppers at senator byrd's after the theatre an occasional walk and talk in the winter's twilight and also there was something else a rainy sunday afternoon when there were no other callers a chance word a quick flush overspreading a flower-like face a sudden lowering of dark lashes then the inevitable interruption and he had taken his leave with throbbing pulses and buoyant step for he thought she understood and now the paragraph in the evening star he repeated it to himself word for word as he turned into pennsylvania avenue with its glare of light and noise of passing cars whose wheels took up and repeated the refrain the engagement of his daughter isabel his daughter isabel his daughter our first castles in the air are very lofty and imposing structures they spring up suddenly complete and beautiful with no faulty architecture nor blemishes in material to mar the pleasure of their contemplation they also seem easy of access and entirely possible of achievement as a rule they fade slowly being in time replaced by smaller yet more substantial edifices they disappear quietly growing daily less distinct even as the towering roofs and steeples of a large city are finally merged into the horizon when viewed from an outgoing steamer and this effacement is so gradual we scarcely realize they have vanished for ever sometimes however these castles are incontinently demolished while yet newly built and fondly cherished they fall about our heads with a crashing of walls and rattling of stones deafening and benumbing in effect and they leave no foundations on which they may be reconstructed generally when this happens we are at first stunned and inclined to believe ourselves crushed and hopelessly crippled by the fall after a while however we push aside the debris and look about we find to our surprise that the sun still shines and the earth revolves as usual and then all at once we realize we must be up and doing again for we must work if we would live and there are still things in life to interest us after all 
David, as he walked briskly down the street, was conscious of a decided sensation of resentment and a desire to be alone. He felt at odds with the world generally, and a fleeting glimpse of Mr. Rivers rolling rapidly along in a hansom, snug and comfortable, was scarcely soothing under the circumstances. He had intended dropping in at one of the theatres and afterwards joining a party of young men at the Alibi Club, but he decided to go instead to the department and work off some arrears of correspondence. It is odd how paramount duty can become when one is disinclined for pleasure. "'Working overtime?' inquired the watchman with a nod of recognition as David paused to get the key of his office. "'You'll have to walk up,' he continued garrulously, selecting the key from the rack beside him. "'The elevators don't run at night.' The great building, which during the day was a veritable hive of industry, teeming with humanity and humming with many voices, mingled with the ceaseless click of the typewriter, was quiet and deserted enough at night. The long corridors, dimly illuminated by an occasional electric light at regular intervals, looked ghostly and unreal as they stretched away into space, and his footsteps upon the marble floor reverberated with a hollow, metallic ring he had not noticed during the day. David unlocked the door of the secretary's office and passed through it into the little room adjoining where his own desk was situated. The pile of unanswered letters he had left a few hours previously confronted him as he turned on the electric light. He looked them over reflectively and, seizing a pad and pencil, scrawled answers to three or four and pushed them aside to be copied in the morning. Then he paused deliberately and glanced into the next room with its deserted desk and vacant chairs. The personality of the secretary clung to this room, even during his absence. The neat rows of papers waiting decision, carefully placed in their proper order of importance, seemed to lie in more decorous piles than most correspondence, as though in deference to the hand which laid them there, and the swivel chair with its covering of brown leather had a quiet dignity of its own, acquired perhaps from daily contact with its occupant. David stood on the threshold and looked at the bookcase, with its simply bound volumes of laws and regulations, at the map of the world on the wall beside it, with the different countries defined by irregular lines of various colors, and at the desk in the center, with its vacant chair and closed drawers. He had drawn a bunch of keys from his pocket and fingered them doubtfully, absently selecting one and holding it uncertainly in his hand. He stood thus for some minutes, then moved impatiently. Why not now as well as any time, he said aloud, and extinguishing his light, passed into the secretary's private office and shut the door. Outside the door the clock ticked steadily, its black hands traveling slowly around its white face, and its pendulum moving monotonously back and forth with the dignified and precise regularity becoming a timepiece in the Department of State. And after the larger hand had several times performed its circuit, the door opened and the private secretary stepped out. He walked down the corridor with lagging step and drooping figure, as though exhausted mentally and physically, and in his hand he carried a long, sealed envelope. End of chapter 17